Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. Today I'm talking to Thomas Baylor. Uh, now, Thomas is an, he's a truly incredible, incredible musician who has worked with the likes of Quincy Jones, Michael Jackson, Frank Sinatra, Elvis Presley, Tina Turner, Stevie Wonder. And I know that's not even scraping the surface. I, I looked at a long, long list and it is, it's the who's who of any and every like top top person from the last sort of 20 30 years in the music industry it's it's unbelievable he is also an author a speaker a mentor and one of his many gifts is his ability to help frustrated masses discover what really makes their heart sing and helps them uh, inspire uh, to bring that to fruition so they can reach their highest potential in life and live a really, truly meaningful and fulfilling life. So it is a huge honour. He could not be a more ideal, perfect guest for this show. And um, it's a huge, yeah, like I said, a huge honour to have him on. So thank you so much, Thomas, or Tommy, for being here today. Thank you, Duncan. It's a pleasure to be here, man. And um, one thing, I mean, because we just started talking about it just then. I was like, oh, I've got to hit the record button. <laughs> yeah, But yeah. a huge, a huge influence in your life, and um, this is a theme that comes up a lot, um, is is your dad, who was just this unbelievable role model in your life and just was teaching you things at, I think, age four years old, which became so um, second nature. You just assumed that this was the way that everyone was taught and grew up. And you actually realised later on in life, actually not everyone had these words of wisdom instilled into them in such a young age. Um, could you maybe just tell me a little bit about your dad and the influence that he kind of had on you growing up? Happy to do it. You know, uh, it actually started with his mom my grandmother. And, and it's funny how we learn such great things through tragedy. You know, we never want a tragedy, but it's amazing what happens when a tragedy happens. My grandmother was happily married to the love of her life. She was 27 years old, had a six-year-old son, my dad. And within two days, her husband was dead. Uh, he caught typhoid fever. And back then, they didn't have a cure for it. And he was dead. And it, she was devastated. And, uh, and this is where she began this question that our family uses all the time, and that's, what do I want? And some people say, well, I asked the universe what I want. And I said, well, that's good. I'm, if that works for you, uh, uh, we've always kind of looked at it as that I'm not sure the universe is in that business. But, <laughs> but the universe responds to what we want. So it's... It begins as a question. My, here, my, here was my grandmother, widowed at 27, and she was hot. And, you know, back then in 1913, the, the family was such a part of, uh, important part of the fabric of the, of, of the village, of the, you know, of the, of the community. There you go. That uh, people would get married both men and women, when they would lose a spouse, they would get married rather quickly, even to someone that they ne didn't necessarily love so much as just that were kind, would good be a parent, or, you know, uh, and my grandmother couldn't do that. She, she explained to me, because I said, grandmother, you 27, you look great. I mean, why, <laughs> why didn't you remarry? And she said, honey, I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't bring myself to marry a person when I was still in love with your grandfather, even though he was gone. I was still in love with him, and, and I didn't want to do that to another man. So I said, well, then what did you do? And she said, well, I cried a lot. And one day I asked myself, what do I want? 
And of course, the question was, I want my husband back. Well, that's not going to happen. So what do you want? She thought, I want to be at home with my son. Well, how are you going to do that? This is what happens within us when we ask ourselves questions. And you know, the amazing power of this, Duncan, is that it takes us out of indecision immediately. Soon as we ask ourselves what we want, the, the, it starts flowing. So she said, okay, so I want to stay at home. How are you going to do that? And she thought, well, I like numbers. So she took a correspondence course and learned accounting. And she lived in a very small town called St. Joseph, Missouri. And she went to the shop owners there, and virtually everyone knew her, and said, you know, I, uh, I'm doing bookkeeping and accounting now. I'd love to help you. And to a man, they said, well, thank you, Lillian. You know, if something comes up, we'll call you. But right, you know, we've had somebody that we're really happy with. And, but those things never dissuaded her. So she thought, what do I want? I want to work for these people. How are you going to do that? Well, you know what? I'm going to talk to their wives. So she talked to the wives. of the, She's an entrepreneur. And she, yes. And she said, you know, whenever you feel good about this, bring me the books and let me do them. And if your husband doesn't notice the difference, then just move on. Well, she ended up working at home. My dad didn't even know she had a job because she worked after he went to bed. So this is a woman in 1913 just took it by the horns and said, this is what I want. And, and so this became the philosophy. She also, the name of my novel, you know, is called Anything is Possible. And that also came from her because she absolutely believed that anything is possible. So, and she instilled this in my father. Uh, and, and sometimes I wonder, because my dad was such a sage all the neighborhood kids came to him, you know, <laughs> and and he would, uh, first of all, my father never told me what to do, not once in my life. I was raised with questions and suggestions. And, and a story that illustrates that is when I was four years old, I came out in the morning to my bicycle and, uh, and it had a flat tire. And I said, Dad, I have a flat tire. And he said, what do you want? And I thought I annoyed him. You know, I said, I'm sorry. And so he gets down on his haunches, so he's looking right into my eyes. He said, son, listen to my words. What do you want? And I said, um, I want my tire to be, I don't want my tire, I want to, I want to, I don't want my tire to be flat. And he said, great, <laughs> what are you going to do about it? I said, I don't know. And he said, but if you did know, which was dad's code for use your power of observation. So I look at the tire, which is flopping off the rim. And I said, well, I guess that tire has to come off the rim. He said, great. How are you going to do that? So I <laughs> no look question. at the wheel. <laughs> exactly. I, I look at the wheel. Wheel is, is connected to the bike by two nuts, you know. I said, I guess those nuts have to come off. He said, great, I'll get you a wrench. So he's totally present, right? So he comes back and he says, son, you're four, so I'm going to loosen them for you. So as soon as they were loose enough for me to manipulate, she, he just stood there and smiled. And so I started taking the nuts off, and I said, oh, Dad, there's so many parts here. I don't know how I'm going to keep track of them. And he said, well, I have a suggestion. You're about two feet away from a wall. You know what I would do? I would take those nuts off and put them next to the wall. And then the next parts, which would probably be the washers, I'll put them next to the nuts but toward me. And just keep doing that until I did, ran out of parts to take off. And then when I want to put it back together, I'll start with the parts closest to me and work my way back to the wall. 
four years old, and I did it. And you know, can you imagine how good I felt about myself? Mm. And it wasn't a wow. You know, it was just like I felt being raised by my father and my mother, but my father particularly in this area, I just felt that I was okay. What a wonderful feeling that is. I didn't feel less than. I didn't feel more than. I just felt okay. And I also felt because I got into that habit of asking questions. And, and when I had a tragedy, I was a trumpet player and quite a good one. And, and there was a reason for this because dad was a trumpet player, was self-taught, then went to Juilliard and played in the studios. And so when I grew up, dad was playing at home and I would look at his eyes when he was playing and he had this look of rapture and I wanted some of that, you know. So I started playing trumpet when I was five. And when I said, dad, I want to play trumpet. And he said, well, I think that's wonderful. He says, you know, with every opportunity comes an equal responsibility. So he would just drop those things on me. And I'm going like, what does that mean? He said, well, I, I believe you should practice every day. I said, okay, how long? And he said, oh, you're five, let's say 10 minutes. Okay, I did it, you know? So that was just kind of the way, it was, it was an exchange of ideas and thoughts. It was never like, do this, do that. And, and uh, so anyway, I became, uh, and dad used to say, he said, son, I'm not your trumpet teacher, I'm your father. But I will get you a great trumpet teacher. And then he would help sort of explain, if he would hear me struggling through something, he said, uh, my trumpet teacher when I was a kid was named Pop. Pop Flower. And dad used to say, uh, if he heard me struggling, he said, do you remember when Pop said so-and-so and so-and-so? He says, maybe if you try that. And I go, oh, yeah, thank you. So he sort of coached me, you know. So anyway, uh, flash, you know, fast forward to I'm going into college. And, and I've been studying all these years since I was five. And, and I'm a pretty terrific trumpet player just by the fact that I've done it so long and had great good teachers and when I got to SC or I was uh, I was getting ready actually to do my senior recital and when I played my trumpet I liked to play classical music so I was auditioning for the symphonies and when I played my flugelhorn I played jazz so you know we had a lot of fun in our family musically <laughs> and uh, and one day I'm at the library with my girlfriend and I get up to walk away and I can't walk I was like paralyzed and I had this pain in my heart and I thought I was having a heart attack. Now I'm 22 years old and never had a problem in my life. Well, she helped me get to the car. I called my doctor and said, and it was on a Sunday, you know, but it was a, I said, I, I think I'm having a heart attack. And he said, well, I sort of doubt that, but you better get to the hospital. So he met me down there. The, what I had was a perforated ulcer and I was leaking fluid into my body cavity. And they said, we need to operate now or you're going to die. So they did. And they cut me down the middle. And when I survived, obviously, and but when the doctor came back in a few days later, he said, you know, your stomach is muscle bound. What sports do you play? And I said, well, I play some intramural sports, but I'm a trumpet player. I play four or five hours a day. And he said, well, you're not going to play for at least two years. And I was crestfallen. Everything that I had worked toward was gone. And the thing was that I was doing so well. So it wasn't a struggle. I was just doing it. And so my family gathered around me and I cried the blues. It was a pity party for at least a week and a half, two weeks. And dad listened. He just listened and listened. Finally, he said, son, 
I understand how bad you feel, and I can understand why you would feel this way. But but everything you're saying is disempowering, is what I hear. I think it's time for you to ask a question that empowers you. And I'm like, oh, Dad, oh, for God's sake. I can't, th- I can't think of anything to ask that's empowering right now. Sorry. And he says, well, I have one <laughs> that I would ask myself if I were in your shoes. And I said, what is it? And he said, am all I am is a trumpet player. And the moment I heard that, something inside of me jumped up and said, hell no, hell no. And man, I was off and running. So I, that threw me into the inventory. Well, what else are you good at? Well, I love to sing and I can read the spots off the paper because I've been playing trumpet since I was five. And, uh, and I play piano, not well enough for somebody to say, you know, hey, come play piano on the gig. And also I didn't, I wasn't the kind of singer that somebody would say, I'd love to hear Tommy sing that, you know. But the point was that, you know, if you're a brass player, you pretty much play in a section and you learn to listen. Mm. In fact, I remember when I first started playing in a section, my dad pulled me to the side and he said, son, you know what I found out when I was about your age? I found out that when I'm playing in a section, if I can hear myself, I'm playing too loud. So I had all of these tools. So I auditioned. My brother said, hey, I just read in the variety that they're looking for a singer on the Smothers Brothers show, which was the number one show on television. It was the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour. And these guys were on top of the world. And they were also giving the censors fits. So, you know, for a 22-year-old kid, it's like, yeah, man, I want to be a part of that. (laughs) So I auditioned for the show, and I got the show. So for four four months from the time I was totally devastated, wondering what I was going to do with the rest of my life, and just completely on a bummer, I was singing on the top show in television. And then I used that question again, because here I was on the show, and I came in mid-season, because uh, one of the singers had moved on. I came in mid-season, so most of the people didn't know me on the show. And it's my first real singing gig. So I'm watching the singers to see what they do, because we were there Monday through Friday. But we only worked about 30% of the time. And the other time, you know, they would use us in blocking. They would use us as bodies and extras. And it was all fun, you know. But a lot of time we sat around, and I looked. So I thought, well, what did the other singers do? And a lot of them read, some of them knitted, some of them played cards, some of them played chess, checkers. And I thought, well, those are all good things, but I'm at freaking CBS. I'm at the greatest network in the world. I want to know more. And as soon as I said, I want to know more, the question came, what are you going to do about it? And I thought, well, I'm going to start at the top. Why not? So I knocked on the director's door. Stan Harris was his name. And he says, come in. I said, hi, I'm Tommy Baylor. Uh, this is only my second week on the show. I don't know if you know me. He says, yeah, I know who you are. What can I do for you? And I said, well, you know, I find myself sitting around a lot. And, I mean, this is CBS. And I just wondered if I was unobtrusive and quiet, would it be okay with you if I followed you around while you direct the show? And you would have thought he found a long-lost relative. He said, of course, of course. What are you doing right now? And I said, I'm following you, sir. <laughs> so, and the, and the benefit of that that I never dreamed of, Duncan, was that people didn't really know me on the show, and they see this young guy hanging out with the director, and they thought I was important. 
And so pretty soon the set designer comes up and says, hey, man, I want to show you what we're going to do for this thing. The, the makeup department come in and say, hey, you know that that pirate number we're going to do? Look at what we're doing. So everybody shared. And I learned how to produce a show just by asking myself a question. What do I want? It's unbelievable. I love so, that. Sorry, I was just, just going to say yeah. when you said when you went up and knocked on their door, I was immediately thinking I can see the link between your grandma, as in that ballsy, going up straight after what you want, you know, going over to you know, the friends' wives, you going up knocking on the door. I can see, I can see the family tie. <laughs> Absolutely, and you know, uh, at first when I first thought of it, I thought, well, he doesn't want to. He's not going to want to deal with me. Mm. You know, who am I? I'm a, and then I realized that that is a lie. It's as much of a lie as saying, you know what? He'll be glad to see me, which he was. So it's amazing how we fool ourselves. And, you know, this has all turned into a book, Duncan. You know that. Yeah. And a course. And I didn't set out to do this. I, I did become an author a few years ago when I, uh, Aesop has been in my life. All my life. I'm glad because I was gonna I was gonna bring Aesop up because this was this yes. this was this is something I'd love to tell, yeah ask you about. So yeah, go for it. <laughs> it's it, it's the key. Uh, uh, when Dad played in the studios after the war, he decided he no longer wanted to play trumpet for a job. He said, "I love it too much. I kind of feel like a high class hooker." So he said, "But I want to be in the music business." So he and my grandfather. Uh, a jukebox route came up on for sale, and he, they bought it and then grew it into 54 different places. And then we were warehousing 5,000 records, and Dad said, wait a minute, with all these records, we ought to open a storefront and serve our neighborhood. So we had Fifth Avenue Music, which is a little different in Inglewood than it is in New York, but it was Fifth Avenue Music. And, and the wonderful thing for two kids, my brother and I growing up, is that we would give Dad a list of records we wanted, and he brought them gladly because when we were through with them, they put them into jukeboxes, so there was no waste. And he sent home this beautiful uh, Warner Brothers after the war. It came out with a series. In fact, they still do it. it now it's on CD and things, but uh, it was, they're called reader records, and they're classic stories told by the Looney Tunes characters, you know, Bugs Bunny, Elmer Fudd, Daffy yeah. Duck. And, uh, and the first one that Dad sent home was Bugs Bunny and the Tortoise, which is the hare and the tortoise. Well, Bugs is a star, and even though he fell asleep, like the classic story, he won by an ear, and the tortoise was kind of a jerk. So, But I was completely enthralled with this story, and I'm three years old. Dad comes home, and I said, Dad, thank you for this. I love this record book. I mean, it's just the best, and I love the story. And he said, well, I'm so glad you like it, son. You know, he said, it's, it's not a new story. I said, it's not? And he said, no, that story is at least 2,500 years old. And I said, oh, come on, Bugs isn't 2,500 years old. And he said, you're right, Bugs isn't, but the story is. And he said, as a matter of fact, son, in the original story, the tortoise one. I'm like, how did he do that? And he said, well, you know, I'm going to grab a book and bring it home. So we started reading Aesop's fables. And in those fables, maybe it was the third week or something, we've gone through 10 or 15 fables. And he said... You know, son, this is the most quoted author in the world, in the history of mankind. And he says, I think I know one of the reasons he is. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, in every story we read, we discover the meaning and we own it. It belongs to us. He didn't tell us. We discovered it. And he said, I just realized that 
I have yet to forget anything I've discovered. I've easily forgotten half of what I learned. <laughs> At least. <laughs> so aren't these wonderful gems to live by? Yeah. And the thing is that they were so embedded in me, Duncan, that I lived them, but they weren't in my consciousness. But when I wrote my book, now my book started out to be a musical because I'm a composer. But Aesop's story came to me. And, you know, the other way that I was raised is my father used to say, son, when a thought comes to you that sticks, because we have a thousand thoughts a day. But he said, when it's so, an idea sticks, he said, it's my belief that that dream picked you. And it picked you because you're the guy to bring it to the world, because an idea without a human remains an idea mm-hmm. in this realm. But when he said, take a look around you, son, everything that isn't absolutely nature began with an idea and somebody believed it was possible. I saw a, I saw a, um, a post that you put on Facebook um, the other day that said, um, whatever comes to us, needs us, wants us, and has picked us. Is that tied yes. in with what you're saying? I love that. Absolutely. All of these posts that we're putting up on my, on my Facebook site are little gems of these things that that I grew up with, you know? And again, they I would spout them every now and then, and my dad would say them, you know, until he passed. But, um, but they weren't really in my consciousness as a formula. Uh, but, so when I, when I wrote Aesop as a musical, uh, the story was long enough. I mean, it would, have been, it would have lasted longer than reading the Nibelung. I mean, it was, you know, it was bigger, longer than four operas. <laughs> and so, and I, and I, the story, I took dictations with the story, just like the songs I write. When I write songs, I, I write what I hear. Again, this was the training. My dad said, if, so, if a thought comes to you, son, it has value. If it comes to you more than once, it has more value. If it comes to you more than twice, write it down. And so I've written since I was a little kid, I wrote songs, and I would hear songs. I'd say, Dad, I'm hearing the song, but I'm hearing it two ways. And he said, wow, you know what I'd do? What? I'd use both of them. Yeah, why not? I don't have to make a choice. You know, and it's just so easy. Not easy, I mean, because I've had, you know, my share of, of challenges in my life. But, I, but just in terms of I've, I've had very little indecision in my life which I think makes up for a lot of ground. Mm. Because when I wanted something, when I saw something I want, I would say, what do I want? Well, it not, rarely was it something material. Uh, there was a time when I wanted a Cushman because I had a paper route. And a Cushman motor scooter, it's kind of like a Vespa, but American. They're, they're really kind of big and clunky. But... <laughs> but this buddy of mine who lived down the street, who was two years older than me, had one, but he also had a learner's permit. So I said, Dad, Jerry, I, my routes, uh, Jerry has a bigger route than mine, and he gets home an hour before I do. If I had a Cushman, I could deliver my paper, serve my customers better. And he says, you know, I think that's a wonderful thing. But he said, you know, there is a law in this city that you need to be 15 and a half to ride a scooter. And I, uh, and you're not. You're, <laughs> and he said, you got a couple of years to go there. And he said, the, the problem with that is if you were to do it and you were to get a ticket, I've seen it happen where then they, then they postpone. When you were 15 and a half, they won't let you have it. That's sort of your payment. And so 
while I listened to dad and, you know, you'd, all of these things, dad never said no. He would just give me something to think about. Yeah. And I thought, well, I still want a scooter. So I asked myself, what do I want? I want a scooter. What are you going to do about it? And I thought, well, I need permission from somebody in power. So <laughs> Get straight to the top. I, I asked my dad. I sort of did. I asked my dad, uh, Dad, what if the police were to say it's okay? And he said, well, if the police say it's okay, it's fine. You know? So I thought, hmm. So one of my best buddies lived two doors down, and his, his dad's name was Mr. Coop. And he was the city manager. So he kind of ran the city, you know, uh, undercover while the mayor, you know, did what the mayor did. But he was kind of the guy who got it, made it happen. Mm. City administrator. So I went to Mr. Coop and he, I knock on the door and he says, hey, I'll get Tucky for you. And I said, well, actually, I want to talk to you. And I told him my story about delivering papers. And he said, you know what? Call Sergeant Benson at the desk uh, downtown and tell him I told you to call and tell him your story. So I did. And Sergeant Benson said, now I did this from my home. And dad just happened to be home. And I said, I'm calling the police department. He says, whatever for? I said, because Mr. Coop said that I should tell him my story. And he goes, okay. So I called. <laughs> so, I have, so I have Sergeant Benson on the phone. I tell him my story. And he says, you know, Tommy, I don't know of a policeman in this city that would pull you over for delivering newspapers on your Cushman as long as you're obeying the law. And I said, would you tell my father this? And he said, sure. So I handed my dad, I mean, I was sweating. I handed the phone to dad. Dad talked to him for a while and he gets off the phone and he says, I have no idea how you did this. <laughs> but you can get a Cushman. What do I want? So <laughs> what do I want? So an amazing thing, and this is where he, once I got the Cushman, we used to, first of all, I used to go to the store for my mom on my bike. I could only hold two bags. Now that I had a Cushman, I could hold five bags. And then I would run errands. In fact, my dad was building a, a barbecue in the back, and there, about eight blocks away, was a was the a little yard that had bricks and stuff. And he would send me down there to pick up certain, you know, things. So I was running errands, and one day, and then Dad even borrowed. He said, "Hey, son, do you mind if I borrow your Cushman? I'm just going over to see Bill." And one day he said, "You know what, son? This dream picked us." Look at what this silly scooter has done for our family. It's made things so much better. <laughs> so those are examples of how this formula works. And when I was six, there was a reason I asked him this, because uh, I learned how to read music to the point that dad had musicians over on Tuesday nights. And he let me sit next to him and read along. He was playing Lady Be Good, yeah. Gershwin Tune. And I'm reading as he's playing, and I'm so proud of myself because I'm reading the notes. Dad's reading it. Oh, my gosh, it was such a thrill. And then he starts to take a solo. And I'm looking for the notes. And I'm like, I look up at Dad, and he looks down at me, and he winks. And after everybody left, I said, Dad, what, you, what were you doing? He said, oh, I was improvising. And I said, oh, is that... Um, Oh, no, I said, oh, improvising, what is that? Yeah, I didn't know what improvising means. He said, that's when you let the music take you. Isn't that beautiful? And I said, is that creative? And he said, yeah, it is. So the seed was planted. Not long after that, I said, Dad, 
how do you be creative in my six-year-old English? You know, he says, I'll tell you how I do it. I keep on forgetting I how young t- you are. So we're, we've gone from four to six. This is crazy. <laughs> well, you know, the amazing thing, he made things so simple, like Aesop. You know, yeah. dad's hero was Aesop. My hero is Aesop. And everything that Aesop, that we learn, and he doesn't teach us. He offers us the stories. And we, you know, like, Duncan, if I were to hear, I mean, we just met. But if I were to say, Duncan, you know, you shouldn't lie. Because if you lie, people won't believe you when you tell the truth. Now, somewhere inside of you, you're going to go, why does he think I'm a liar? How dare him think I'm a liar? Who the hell is he to tell me this? You know, and you would get totally off the subject and go into all of these personal things because it feels like an attack. Mm. I'm saying you shouldn't lie. <laughs> you're thinking, what? Why are you telling me this? You know? <laughs> but if I were to tell you the story of the boy who cried wolf, and he's out watching the sheep, and he's very lonely. And he calls Wolf, and when the people come out, he has got what he wanted. He got company. And they said, where's the wolf? And he said, well, he ran off. Well, they believed him. And the second time they happened, it's like, well, yeah, it could happen. But about the third time, and they're like, oh, okay, no, we're not going to do this. <laughs> and then when the wolf does come, they don't show up. And that was his consequence. So now, don't you feel for him, but don't you also discover what I would have told you, right? But you own it because that belongs to you. You go, oh, yeah. And we don't, I find, I have, like my father, I have yet to forget something I've discovered. But boy, in school, especially, I used to get in trouble in school because, you know, there are so many facts that they give us because they can test on them. I wasn't interested in the day that Sherman came into Atlanta. I wanted to know why, you know? And I wanted to know how many men were with him and what did he encounter when he got there? And the teacher, my dad would, he used to go to the parent conference with me. Well, I mean, he let me go with him. And the teacher was kind of unnerved. He said, well, I figured it's about him. He could be here. And they said, how's Tommy doing? He said, well, you know, he kind of interrupts the class. And he said, is he acting up? And he said, no, he just asked too many questions. And dad said, wow, I thought that's why we were in school. I mean, he was just amazing, you know. So this is what I grew up with, and, and it made my life fairly easy. And, you know, what, what really surprised me is when I got into the industry, one of the first people I worked with was Elvis Presley. And it was at the height of his power. This is a 1968 comeback special, and if you ever watch it, he is absolutely on top of his game. He'd just gotten out of the Army, and he looked great. He sang great, and he was so happy to be home, and, and it was amazing. And, and he was so friendly, and it amazed me because uh, I was also at the time putting a group together for Ford Motor Company. So when they called me to sing on the show, I couldn't make rehearsal. Now, normally, if you're hired and you can't make rehearsal, you don't do the gig. But I explained to them why. I said, well, I I can't make rehearsal because I may, I'm meeting with the president of Ford and I doubt that they'll move that meeting for me to make a rehearsal. <laughs> and, and the contractor said, oh, Tommy, you're fine. Yeah, just come. Just come to the gig. So Friday, they all had a rehearsal. There were eight singers, but there were seven that day. And they rehearsed with Elvis. Now, the next day, we're in the recording studio. Elvis comes in with his crowd. And these were buddies. These were not like, you know, these were his neighborhood buds, you know. He walks in and he walks over and and he says hi to the orchestra and he knew most of the guys in the orchestra. And he walks over and names every singer by name. Hi, Sally. Hi, Jackie. Hi, Sue. 
And then he walks over and says to my brother, hi, John. Hi, Mitch. Hi, Gene. And he looks at me and he says, I don't believe we've met. My name's Elvis Presley. That was Elvis. Oh, my God. How beautiful is that? (laughs) What a guy. And then my brother, he actually became friends. But what I noticed about him is that he was using the same tools. And then when I worked with Sinatra, boy, Sinatra used them like crazy. And, and you know, when I met Quincy Jones, when I started working with Michael Jackson, uh, Diana Ross, uh, Barbara Streisand, virtually all the people I worked with. And then I was working, I worked with two presidents and I worked with uh, Steven Spielberg, all of these people. And the wonderful thing was that I was value added. So I didn't seek jobs. They came to me because of whatever I had to offer, which was beautiful because it was always eye to eye. I never felt like, oh, my God, I'm with Steven Spielberg, you know. But what I learned from him and what I discovered being him with him was amazing. Uh, when, you know, Color Purple, right? Absolutely. Yeah, the boy. I want the film, yeah. Alice Walker. Pulitzer Prize winning novel and just what a what a book. And she would not let Hollywood have it. And Goober and Peters were the biggest producers at that time and they wanted it. And they visited her and she said, well, no, I don't want to do a Hollywood movie about my book. It just doesn't feel right. And then some of her confidants said, but you know what? If you got Quincy Jones involved, uh, I bet he'd keep the integrity. So they mentioned that to Goober Peters. Goober Peters called Quincy. <laughs> now, Quincy did a what do I want really quickly because they said, hey, Q, we want to make you executive producer of this film. And, you know, you can. And, and he says, I have a better idea. He said, I'll produce the film and you be executive producers. And they said, but you've never produced before. And he said, that's all right. I have you. And he got it. And then he started making lists. I spent so many years with Quincy since 1973, you know. Watching him work is so amazing. He would make lists and of people that he felt should direct the movie. And he just made list after list after list. But certain names were always on them. Barbara Streisand was one of them. And, and uh, Steven Spielberg was. And it took him 18 months to get Steven to do this film. At first, Steven says, man, I... I make movies about aliens, you know? <laughs> and he said, this is, this is human nature and things that are tough. You know, he said, I'm not comfortable. Well, finally, you know, look what happened after he did Color Purple. He did Schindler's List. I mean, my gosh. Uh, and in the middle of making this film, naturally being at Stephen, Alice Walker, Quincy Jones, uh, Goober and Peters, we had our pick of of screenwriters. So they started at the top. They got all the greatest screenwriters and they would write 25, 50 pages and none of them were, they, none of them were right. You know, they're all great. When you get to that level, they never write anything that's not good, but it wasn't, it didn't have what, what Stephen was looking for. And one day we were, now I was kind of on the side, but I was there at all of these meetings because Quincy and I were partners at that point. And, uh, I love my access to people through him. So I'm sitting in this meeting and some of the creative team said, you know, Stephen, maybe this is one of those books that doesn't translate to film because look at who we've had right and it's not happening. 
And Stephen stood there in the meeting, and he held his hand. Now, I don't know, if, are, are, your, are your people able to watch this? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, we're going to have some people okay, listening cool. to an audio, but a lot of people will be watching it. Okay. Well, he held his hand up like this with the fist closed, <laughs> with the fingers up. And he said, what can we put in this? And then he said, what can we put in this? And the meeting was over. And three weeks later, we found our writer. Keep an open mind. Just go for it. As soon as we decide we can't, we're right. I mean, remember Henry Ford said, if you believe you can, can or yeah. can't. It doesn't right. matter, does it? If you believe you can, no. you can. If you believe you can't, you can't. Absolutely. Absolutely. 